Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Well, welcome to uh, episode Rock Art 73 on the Archaeology Podcast Network. We're going to be hearing from Trace Fleeman Garcia, an international scholar in the Oregon Institute of Creative Research. We're going to talk about a thing called semiotics, the making of meanings and how we uh, we define and discern meanings. Here we go. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host for the Rock Art Podcast, episode 73. We uh, are blessed and honored to have Trace Fleeman Garcia and interdisciplinary scholar with the Oregon Institute for Creative Research. We're going to sort of uh, roll through this and talk a bit about, talk about, an, it's an esoteric uh, subject, but one that's near and dear to my heart called semiotics. And we're going to uh, drill down and talk about meaning and metaphor in uh, symbols. Trace, are you there? <laughs> yes, I am. Trace, it's an honor and a real, real blessing. We uh, have only met recently, very recently at the uh, Society for California Archaeology meetings there in Visalia. Mm -hmm. Yep, my hometown. And we uh, certainly became fast friends, didn't we? Yes, we did. Absolutely. And, and Trace, why don't, why don't you um, give the listeners sort of a thumbnail sketch of what the heck semiotics is and why it might even be relevant to the study of rock art? Mm -hmm. So classically, semiotics is considered as the science of signs. And that is a definition that comes up all across the literature. And semiotics is a, a very wide and generally interdisciplinary field with a lot of connections between anthropology, but also in mathematics, in symbolic logic, in linguistics, of course, especially 
But of course, that doesn't really explain very much as to what semiotics actually is. A better definition might be that semiotics studies the process of meaning making um, or semiosis across different disciplines, across different codes, across different mediums. So semiotics was first developed in the early 1900s by Ferdinand de Saussure, who was a French theorist and one of the founding fathers of modern linguistics and Charles Sanders Peirce in the United States. Generally, semiotic theory is more so aligned with Peirce's notion of the sign, but Saussure has a lot of influence still, especially in the linguistic side of things, on the linguistic side of things. Um, He's also considered uh, one of the founders of modern linguistics, as I said. Indeed, he actually calls semiotics a form of general linguistics when he first actually defines the word, when he first coins the word. And I think in the world of rock art, myself, Carolyn Boyd, and certainly uh, David Whitley, and and just a very few others, my uh, colleague from uh, Guanajuato University uh, in Mexico has used the terminology. In attempting to examine the uh, signs, symbols, and uh, individual elements that are recurring, in the uh, archaeological record that we find on rock art. And uh, I think that's been uh, uh, somewhat useful and and, uh, of of great value to us to begin to sort of wrap our minds around the uh, meanings of meanings, as you put it, or the, you know, the intention of these uh, particular symbols and just exactly how and what they're trying to communicate. Yeah, that definitely, that definitely fits. As I mentioned, semiotics is a very wide discipline and how semiotics is considered and how it's actually done across those disciplines. For example, in biosemiotics, which studies the the life of signs and the signs of life, how it considers signs and the process of semiosis and meaning making is a lot different than semiotics as it crops up in structuralist anthropology in sort of the middle of the 20th century and different still than how semiotics crops up in literary theory and in critical theory, which is my background, I would say, critical theory, the basis for my interdisciplinary notions. Yeah. Tell me a bit about critical theory and how or what that would be uh, of relevance to our work in the uh, world. of. So critical theory is, um, like semiotics, is a very wide field. Generally, I like to explain it as this theory of critique, or not necessarily criticism, but critique. There are two main schools of critical theory. There is more so the French side of things with thinkers like Foucault, Jacques Derrida, and uh, Lyotard are three very big ones. Mm -hmm. And the Marxist theory of, or Marxist model of critical theory, which is associated more deeply with the Frankfurt School, with thinkers like Adorno and Benjamin and other, uh, other primarily German-speaking philosophers. Critical theory has very close relationships to semiotics, especially through writers like Roland Barthes. And even early in Foucault's work, he writes a lot about semiotics and signs and specifics. So critical theory is this very broad term, just like semiotics. Right. But it has more of a focus on criticism and critique critique as interpretation, but also cultural critique, cultural criticism. Some have said that Nietzsche is the father of critical theory in the West. Okay. So I I guess to bring it down to something that maybe our listenership might understand or might 
grasp or sort of hang their hat on. There is this concept called indexical animals. Have you run across that, Trace? Indexical mm-hmm. yes. animals. Yes, I have. And there's been a couple of papers written about that. And and one of those indexical animals that I could bring up, a couple of them, but that I that's been near and dear to my heart, of course, is the desert bighorn or the other one that we've been focused on, of course, is the serpent. But what mm-hmm. those indexical animals tell us about the uh, cultural milieu of the uh, indigenous people that depict them is there's a, a package, a, a set of compound metaphors that relate to the imagery that is used on their rock art. And uh, Pax said quite a lot of multiple meanings, imbricated meanings that uh, help us understand the imagery. Now, they're powerfully religious. They're sacred. They're also involved with uh, some of the mundane elements of hunting, but also fertility and rain and et cetera, et cetera. And only as we uh, begin to study these images and think about them linguistically and uh, ethnographically and from every other angle, sometimes through habits and habitat of the animals themselves, can we really begin to get a sense of the significance and the understanding of the way these particular symbols were nested in the cognitive map of the universe for these people. And it's very revelatory once one can get to that particular level. Does that make any sense, Trace? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I would consider this to be one of the most fertile places where semiotics could cross into archaeology and into ethnography. There is already, um, it seems to be, some crossover from the rhetoric of semiotics, the, the vocabulary of semiotics here. There are generally considered to be three main categories of signs in classical semiotics, and those are the index, the symbol, and the um, icon. And of course, an icon is something that, exactly what it sounds like, something that actually mimics what it represents. Whereas an index is something that kind of interestingly here is something that has kind of a natural relationship. So the, the classical example of that would be that smoke is an index of fire. Right. And of course, this is in classical semiotics, these definitions have shifted slightly over the years, over the mm-hmm. now up to 100 years of semiotics existence in the West, although some would like to point out semiotics roots in, in medieval Europe, in um, the writings of, of Porphyry and even St. Augustine. So, so for instance, as an example, just to bring this, you know, full, full court, full circle, as it were, oh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the book that... Uh, I'm writing with and have written with uh, Tirtha is called The Iconicity of the Udo Aztecans. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. so, and, and so what we're attempting to do is historically talk about the evolution of certain key symbols and how those are tethered and nested in the uh, cosmology and the religious perspective of uh, people that have been classed as associated with uh, a, a, an overarching linguistic unit known as Uto-Aztecans and how the um, mm-hmm. environment and their cultures and habits and habitats and sociopolitical organization, et cetera, has sort of uh, focused 
in, in a way on these central hallmark elements. And they can be something as simple as a, as a symbol for water, a symbol for a serpent, a feathered serpent, on and on, and the rattlesnake as well. So all of these different packages, which uh, seem somewhat mundane and simple, end up being highly, highly complex, as you're well aware. Mm-hmm. Yes. One of the advantages that semiotics gives to the analyses of things like rock art, but also any cultural text, um, that, that notion of text is a lot wider in semiotics than it is in literary theory, for example, or non-semiotic literary theory. But one of the advantages, advantages it gives is that it allows one to investigate and interrogate the underlying grammar and syntax of symbols in things that are wider than linguistics. And as I mentioned, Ferdinand de Saussure very closely allied semiotics to linguistics, although he wanted to broaden the field a little bit, actually a lot, and he did end up broadening the field. There has been critique on the side of semioticians and non-semioticians alike that semiotics uses linguistics as kind of a metaphor for everything else, that it just kind of invades other fields with linguistic rhetoric. A lot of cinematic semioticians have, for example, moved the notion of the text away from words and speaking and these metaphors of words and speaking, talking about how signs speak rather to a visual grammar. And in, within the field of cinema, how films communicate through a different form of syntax, that of the shot and that of the uh, transition. So, so some of the things that at, at another level that we get into in our book and in our research and writing is uh, something called neurotheology. It's also called neurophysiology or, or cognitive archaeology. Mm-hmm. And I know that, that Tirtha coming from the art history side and also the visual anthropology side and also some of the, you know, I don't know what you'd call this, but anyways, has broadened our understanding or, or noted and argues that signs themselves in certain ways evoke neurological responses when one perceives them. And those neurological responses, that neurophysiology, can in fact uh, elicit certain feelings. And these feelings are cross-cultural and sometimes almost embedded as, as something that one might call an instinct or a deeply seated and ingrained physiological response, where people over time and place have a, uh, a similar sense of the significance and meaning or, how would you put this, the feeling that this these particular images are meant to evoke. Does that make any sense to you too, Trace? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So talk a bit about that. I think a good word for that, that feeling that you would get from looking at a sign or from recognizing a sign in critical theory, we might describe as affect. Yes. Um, aff- thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes. As affect. So the intersections between neurology and meaning making processes has a very deep history in semiotics. So in the early years, in the early years of the first half of the 20th century, you get thinkers from psychoanalysis, in particular, Jacques Lacan, who 
draws a lot on linguistics and semiotics in particular, adopting the notion of the sign into psychoanalysis. So this is where we start to see the roots of yeah. psychological and cognitive interest in semiotics. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, Lacan is credited with speaking of, he says that the unconscious is structured like a language. Oh my word. Interesting. Let's, let's stop there and uh, we'll pick it up on the other side and uh, continue this very unusual discussion of the esoteric area of uh, signs and meanings and semiotics. And we're going to bring it on home and begin to talk about how that relates back to rock art. See you in the flip-flop gang. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out an introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Register of Professional Archaeologists and the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com and check out the link in the show notes. Well, hello out there in podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, back for segment two of uh, the Rock Art Podcast, episode 73. And I'm with Tress, Trace Fleeman Garcia, who's an, a really a, a interdisciplinary scholar with the Oregon Institute for Creative research, talking about the subject of semiotics. And I'm sure that many of you had never heard of that subject or uh, know much about it. I, I have only recently delved uh, superficially in that topic, but find it to be very, very relevant and very interesting in the study of rock art. So I think you're going to hear some things that are a bit revelatory. Trace, are you there? Mm -hmm. Yes, I am. Great. We began talking in the first segment about something that you're calling uh, cognitive semiotics. Perhaps talk a bit about that, would you? So as I had mentioned in the earlier segment, semiotics has this very deep history with um, cognition and with psychology and in particular psychoanalysis. In the past 50 years, a newer discipline of semiotics or biosemiotics has kind of appeared on the stage. I myself am a member of the International Society for Biosemiotics. And just this last year, I was presenting research at their annual conference. And um, ultimately, biosemiotics is, no, is considered to be a study of the life of signs and the signs of life, as once again, I had mentioned before, and has a deeper relationship with the fields of biology and in particular neurology than semiotics kind of had in the past. Although uh, many would argue that um, biosemiotics starts actually in the late 19th century with um, Ukshkul and other, in, uh, other researchers in biology um, and ethology, not to be confused with, but ethology, the study of behavior. So within cognitive semiotics are these new and interesting ideas about how to apply the methods and theory of semiotics to studying things like neurons, but also the notion more widely of meaning making within the body, which includes things like the analysis of DNA and RNA as codes, as semiotic codes. And, and in rock art, if I, if I try to drill down to certain aspects that I I myself and others perhaps have uh, thought about or used or maybe not. There's certain elements, certain elements, certain designs and symbols that 
at least to us, I think elicit, as you call it, emotions or feelings or affect. Sometimes they're surprise, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're terror. And other times it's, it's almost like uh, staring or riveting attention. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. So one of those that are cross-cultural that seem to appear regularly on what I call supra mundane beings, or you can call them shamanistic ancestor deities or any kind of other figure you want. These are uh, full front facing numinous creatures, right? that have concentric circle faces. <laughs> and this concentric circle face is, uh, you know, a bit of a bullseye. But when one sees it, uh, as, as my colleague has reminded me, although we can't see two eyes, we can certainly see one eye. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's, we know it's alive. We know it's something that is actually a being of sort, and it rivets one's attention almost in a hypnotic way. And uh, it, it almost opens one's mind to a bit of mystery. How's that? Mm -hmm. you've, you've seen these, haven't you, Trace? Mm -hmm. Yes, I have. Semionics has, I think, a lot to offer um, the systematic study of, of rock art. And as we've talked about, there is already a, a crossover of semiotic rhetoric to anthropology and to archaeology, um, we talk about indexical animals and mm -hmm. um, why rock art is very ripe for semiotic discussion is very simple. It's because rock art is obviously um, a process of meaning making. And I think that that makes it already within the within the discipline of semiotics. It's already a semiotic endeavor to make uh, rock art. And when we talk about affect, semiotics also provides us with a broader model for how we actually do the analysis of those things like affect. Other signifiers within rock art might not only be the visual or the emotional or yes, or the, but also might have to do th with things like position. And even from the field of archaeoastronomy with things like how light reflects off of them during different types of the year. Those yes. are all things that hold significant meaning, and those yes. are indeed signs. Um, oh, yeah. When sign, when, and those having a very solid model for recognizing and analyzing those signs within archaeological contexts, I think, is what semiotics has to offer, rock art in particular. Well, it was interesting. I just had an interview not too long ago with um, a gentleman who's an archaeologist who... Uh, published a book and did a bunch of uh, uh, descriptor analysis and, and consideration for uh, the indigenous cultures that are uh, the, the farthest middle America or middle, middle Latin America and, nor and Northern South America. And they're man and they're manufactured from gold or um, this green jadeite. And he said something that has absolutely stuck with me tremendously. And he said, you know, those are both stones and these are objects that are obviously have meaning and are ritual or, or um, symbolic and uh, ceremonial objects. But they're very similar in form in the sense that one must polish them to a high level and they glisten in the sun. They're preserved and they uh, radiate light. And that obviously has a very significant 
communication or message to be made relating mm-hmm. to power. And I said, wow, <laughs> that that is rather interesting and that even has relevance for rock art because uh, some of the earliest rock art is called Great Basin Carved Abstract. And it looks like the artisans went to town in almost making sculptures on the rocks of embedding a, almost a three-dimensional convexity and concavity to these uh, artistic images that are abstract into the rocks. And, and that to me is fascinating. So, yes. Yeah, so these, the way semionics can help to analyze the way that these different signs, not necessarily just the visual signs, but signs more broadly, things like material and, and place and location and time and how they fit together in, into these strings and they fit together within a particular grammar, within a particular syntax. Yes, yes. And it's the, the, these Sasor, I believe, was the one who noted that signs are not simply like their value is not quantitative, but more qualitative, that he likened it to every piece on a chessboard. It relates to each and one next to it. And only in the context of how they relate to each other can the actual value of the pieces be understood. Wow. That's, that's rather sophisticated, complicated, and, and endlessly engaging and interesting to have said something like that. It's, rather, it's amazing, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think it's very prescient in the way that uh, I've, I've begun to understand these images and these indexical animals and these uh, icons that uh, go on for hundreds and sometimes thousands of years and become, uh, you know, very central to the cosmological nexus and the religious metaphors of people. And semiotics isn't simply consigned to the vi- to visual and non-linguistic metaphors. It can also be applied to signs as they come up in literature and in particular, yes, in, in ethnographic records. And semiotics can act as a bridge between those different disciplines to elucidate the, the, those codes, as we would say in semiotics. So I would think they, they would relate back to sort of material culture and ethnographic, uh, you know, elements and mm-hmm. patterns and habits and, and ceremonies and, and rituals and all, all the various sundry things that cultures do and process. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So for semiotics, you could say that the there for semiotics, there is no hard boundary between what, what, what one might say is the immaterial realm and the material realm, that even, even objects are rife and actually overflowing with meaning. So let me, so let me, let me uh, throw something at you because I, I, we did use this, I think, in one of our articles that I found so interesting and some, somehow innovative, and I'm sure you'll have something to say about this. I guess a scientist decided to share, and I think this was um, particular uh, photographs or images of some of the uh, most ancient sculptures that we've ever found, you know, 40, 50,000 years ago, and uh, showed them some of these Venus figures and the, the famous lion man or lion head. And then he asked a series of people who are professional actors and actresses to mimic the postures, the gestures, 
the, the physicality of these sculptures and clear their minds and then share with, with them what, what their body and their mind is telling them about these particular sculptures. And it was interesting to see when you talk about affect and ideas and, and emotions, each one had a different way of sort of posturing their sculptures as whether sad or open or, or you know, optimistic or engaged. They, were, they had different elements that they uh, discerned from just taking those postures. Fascinating, huh? Mm-hmm. That's absolutely wonderful. I definitely would be interested in reading more on that. Yeah, but I, but I think that has something to do with our discussion today, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In that notion of gesture in art, to bring this back around to talk about rock art once again, or petroglyphs, yes. Yes. there is a very famous Yokuch panel up on the Thule River Reservation in Tulare County. Correct. And this this huge panel that has been a lot. There's been a lot of speculation about it, and a lot of re-speculation about it. Ethnographic records from the late 1800s don't seem to match up with those from mm-hmm. later years. From after that, but one of the more interesting analyses I saw with it, there is this huge central being. figure on it, which some later researchers have argued is a mythological figure, a a hairy man or a wild man figure, whereas some earlier and some more critical scholars later who are critiquing this incoming interpretation interpret it as a grizzly bear. But very in particular, I noticed that these earlier and more critical researchers identify the gesture that the figure is making as a gesture in Yokut's culture, one of negation, a linguistic, kind of like a shake of the head. One of negation? One of negation, yes. Mm-hmm. And that these ways that these gestures, how, how they are, that they, again, are there is, with the analysis of literature, different linguistic groups have different ways of, to very succinctly call it body language. They have different ways of doing body language. And um, these gestures can be seen in, in rock art, not just rock art, but any form of figurative art. And the way that they work as signs is preserved. Exactly. So... Let's um, close out this second segment and move into the next one, maybe talking a bit about these gestures and the uh, rock art images. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, podcasters out there. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel, your uh, interviewer and host for the uh, Rock Art Podcast. And we have Trace Fleeman Garcia, a interdisciplinary scholar with the Oregon Institute for Creative Research, talking about signs and meanings of signs and the study of semiotics. Trace, it's been an interesting interaction, hasn't it? I definitely would say so. Yes, a very engaging and uh, broad-ranging discussion. Let's uh, continue this discussion a little bit on the area of gestures and 
I have to bring up an article by uh, Maringer, M-A-R-I-N-G-E-R, who the only one I've ever seen that uh, takes special notice of the recurring gestures that occur on rock art throughout the ages. And um, he packages them into a terminology called adherence, A-D-O-R-A-N-T-S, and in includes a package of uh, supplication, surrender, prayer, beneficence, all of that and much more. I've had a fantastically interesting, you know, sort of interlude thinking about that. I'm of uh, the Catholic faith, and when I go into uh, pray on Sundays, part of the liturgy uh, is when individuals raise their hands towards the sky. And this seems to be a almost a universal gesture of... Uh, I don't know if it's supplication, but it's a, uh, asking for connection from the divine to the terrestrial or looking for some sort of uh, connection to uh, the supernatural realm. And I find that to be rather, rather interesting. That particular gesture is found actually throughout the great mural rock art of uh, Baja, California, where many, in fact, most of those uh, larger-than-life figures that are painted on rock shelters in what's called the Great Mural Rock Art Tradition have their hands thrust towards the sky. What would you think about that, Trace? Well, definitely gestures have our signs. I've talked a lot about signs in these three segments, but I don't think I've really defined it well enough in order to speak about things like gestures. So just very quickly, I will say that for, Umbo um, for Umberto Eco, who is a great famous novelist and also mm -hmm. literally wrote the book on semiotics, uh, um, he defines a sign as anything that can be used to lie. The classical definition of a sign from Sassur right. is, um, is that anything that stands for something else. But for Umberto Eco, a better definition of that is anything that can be used to lie. So anything, any sign process or meaning making process is liable to be analyzed from the framework from the methods of semiotics and that includes a gesture and gestural languages gestural codes again as we would say in semiotics occur very broadly and in regards to the liturgy that you bring up i think that this kind of this language of gestures is very mm -hmm. beautifully mm -hmm. illustrated in the sign of the cross as a gesture and it's not simply one gesture, one sign, but indeed a whole complex of signs that relate to other signs. How it's done with the right hand, because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and how it also acts as a performance, as a, as a participation in the major mysteries of the church. So gestures are these very complex things, and they indeed act within their own grammar, within their own syntax. Um, what part of where, where they in, in, um, and it's communicated in signs and different values of the signs, like um, like you mentioned in this rock heart of these these characters, these figures um, reaching towards the sky. So when when we see a character reaching towards the sky, there are other signs that can be dug out of it. The upward direction is its own sign. It it refers to something. It's always mm -hmm. a tricky. There there's a there's a notion of intention in signs but what but because everything things are overflowing with meaning in semiotics you can't you can't narrow cast a sign 
You can't you can't pinpoint or say precisely what a particular sign might mean because it is such a package of many meanings all intertwined or imbricated, as as we've said. So am I correct in sort of Mm -hmm. assessing that? No, you're absolutely correct. Semiotics can be considered in a certain sense a process philosophy that instead of looking at things as these static objects, rather it's it's a study of, of sign or semiosis. In fact, Umberto Eco has a, a deep critique of this notion of semiotics, that it is a, the analysis mm-hmm. of solid objects, of these things that don't change, but instead moves right. it towards um, an analysis of semiosis. So with this process of, of rock art creation, there is this, the obvious process we see the process of making rock art and interpreting rock art within these particular cultures but there's also wider processes at hand including the process the meaning making process that is interpretation um, right is interpretation right. from archaeology and archaeology and, and, itself in a certain sense is a semiotic practice so when we see a panel of uh, rock art elements together in a clustered sphere there could be many meanings embedded in that conflation of images, correct? Many readings, many many interpretations that can be read from those. Although that does not mean that semiotic, uh, semiotic analysis is not fruitful to the study of the past. Archaeology in a, in a very pre-modern sense as the study of the past, the study of the arche in Greek, you know, the basis. Right. Because... With ethnographic records and mythological ones for things that, you know, if we have we have a very we have a nice wealth of of sources in Mesoamerica for iconographic analysis of, of, of rock art and art more generally, those gestures and things we have. And then we have linguistic elements, how we those gestures generally can be tied to and how they work tied to linguistic groups that is spoken lingual groups that the sign for negation in Yokuch-speaking cultures can be seen in the rock art of the Yokuch that actually very easily can help one see what the most likely candidate for who created the rock art or what meaning it might and, have. And exactly. So um, for, for instance, as an example, we have these anthropomorphic figures, larger than life, and they are displayed in a full front-facing, static, numinous posture. And that's how they're displayed. The animals are, are always displayed from the side or in portrait in tremendous vital action poses. They are just running at an incredible speed out of those rock shelters and up towards the uh, celestial realm. And so that, that gives one pause for consideration, does it not? <laughs> You've already are crossing over into a very classical form of semiotic analysis, and that is the the analysis of binary oppositions. Yes, um, for a lot of for a lot of structural anthropologists who again have these deep influences from semiotics. Absolutely, absolutely. These meaning making systems are their most their most basic building blocks are these binary oppositions, and you can identify binary oppositions, and for one of the most famous semiotic folklorists he developed, um, his name is Grimas, Grimas, Grimas. Mm-hmm. 
think it's Graimas, but he prepared this, he prepared this, this model, this, um, this, what he calls a semiotic square or just a Graima square for him, which is a way of analyzing these binary oppositions um, through this, what he defines as the contrary relationship. Mm-hmm. So we have good versus evil. Then you have negation or a contradictory relationship, which is not good or not evil. And then implication. So not good would imply not or not good implies evil, um, even if those things, those signs are not equivalent. And then with these wider, this wider taxonomy, one can start to classify signs and characters and icons on this this map of meaning it's a way of formalizing and modeling and and it's sort uh, of semiotic. it's sort of a car, it's sort of a cartography of the mind isn't it mm-hmm. absolutely yes yeah. and I, mm-hmm. I i just came up with that but i'm sure it's been used before mm-hmm. but but uh you know on some of these uh, rock art panels and some of these pictographs and other things when you study them and you study the cultures occasionally you get an overwhelming sense you know what the artisan was trying to communicate as an example there's historic paintings that are related to the ghost dance and what i found is uh, both the colors and the spatiality of these uh, pictographs mirror sort of the cosmological realm the um, religious metaphors that these indigenous cultures had both with color and space so that the um, the most ethereal and sacred figures are white and they're up in the heavens and then the um, mm-hmm. mid-level figures of course are in red and those are terrestrial or human and uh, some of the uh, worst or some of the most uh, you know what would you call it? The the underworld or netherworld figures are in black, <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. it's rather transparent what they're trying to uh, tell you. You you understand? Uh huh. Yes. So there are for Saussure, he defines two different types of linguistic analysis, and he applies these to semiotics as well. Because for him, semiotics is general linguistics. He and you may be familiar with these terms of a synchronic analysis and a diachronic analysis. Okay. For the synchronic analysis, there that is the analysis of a system of meaning, as a kind of, mm-hmm, uh, without relation to time. Whereas a diachronic ah. relationship is how that relationship changes within time. Yes. So for Saussure, he considered semiotics to be a synchronic endeavor or his sort of his model of semiotics is a synchronic endeavor. The way that within one, without relation to time, how these signs relate to each other. Whereas most of linguistics was considered what he considered to be a diachronic system or analysis. Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of both. So, and and I've used both in terms of trying to understand or relate back to um, attempting to tease out the meaning and metaphor of particular uh, figures, deities, super mundane, supernatural creatures. One in uh, an indigenous culture is called Yahuera, and it turned and the native people told us that this particular figure is uh, the mistress or master of the animals. And it appears as a bird 
and it lives in the underworld. And uh, the name Yahweh uh, is a package that relates back to both the sound the bird makes, the screech, and also the death posture and life posture of that animal. So, of course, as you deconstruct or look for this embedded symbolism in the meaning-making of the verbiage, the words, the lexicon, you can tease out some salient elements. And I'm sure that's also part of semiotics, is it not? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. From a semiotic perspective, that is absolutely, that is already a semiotic endeavor, even if it doesn't adopt the, the same sort of rhetoric that other semioticians might use. And this is something I've noticed in my own studies, even outside of anthropology and archaeology yeah. and critical theory, that there is this overall in, in academia and in, and in writing about the sciences, there is this turn towards meaning, this turn towards, we talk a lot about physics envy, which is these uh, different disciplines which try to adopt uh, a veneer of physical of posturing science, right? to kind of look, because there is this social capital that's yeah that is that is associated with physics and with mathematics right but we're kind of seeing the opposite of that and with some of my research that I was presenting at the International Society for Biosemiotics I offered this that there's this question of the individual in biology okay and that there are these really new and very fashionable models that are coming out, um, like the information theory of individuality that is trying to apply information theoretical methods to the analysis of individuals. And what I'm in my research, I'm looking at that and I'm saying that this, these, these new researchers are looking for semiotics, that they're looking for semiotics and that there is what, where, what semiotics has to offer that information theory doesn't have to, doesn't, can't give, it has this advantage over information theory is that semiotics is, is it doesn't flatten the, the study of these signs. It is a necessarily qualitative form of analysis. Well, we've used up all our time. You want to do a closing statement, Doc? And, uh, and, and tell our uh, folks out there what you think we've accomplished today. <laughs> Give the summary. Give me a little hook. So semiotics is at its heart these studies, uh, the study of meaning making, of semiosis, and any process that holds meaning or creates meaning or interprets meaning, it fits within the discipline of semiotics. And semiotics gives us this this wonderful grammar, this wonderful model, this wonderful form of rhetoric for this analysis of meaning. And as we are, as semiotic theory develops, we are looking at ways in which sometimes interesting and surprising ways in which the world is saturated and indeed overflowing with meaning. Fantastic. Trace, this was a wonderful journey and I really, really appreciate your time. See you on the flip-flop, gang. Hope you enjoyed it. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends.
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.